Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Hey guys, welcome back and thanks for listening and still making commitments to learning with all this craziness going on. Hope you guys are all still doing well. I am your host, Jordan Porter, joined by the wonderful, healthy Yvonne Brandenburg. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad that you think I'm healthy. I guess guess I'm pretty healthy right at the moment. Considering the circumstances (laughs) and how you've had COVID in your building. Oh, yeah. Healthy. I guess, I, I don't know if, I haven't really said anything about it on social media. So yes. Um, so I'm going to timestamp all this stuff because I feel like otherwise it won't make sense. So currently we are recording this on April 7th. Um, mm-hmm. So kind of still in the midst of the COVID. Um, yeah. And I just, in the last week and a half, we had um, two people in the building test positive. So it's been, <laughs> it's been interesting because essentially everyone in the entire building has been exposed now to it. So we're a little bit on a lockdown within our building as far as, you know, if, if people want to stay home, they can. Um, and then when we are at work, we have to wear masks at all times so we don't cross contaminate ourselves further. Um, and then we're still, you know, having all the precautions in place for clients and everything but yeah I think I'm healthy right now <laughs> yeah and I let think, me know if you start coughing in like three days oh my god seriously I know right I guess that'll in three more days will be about the two week or the 10 day mark yeah exactly because um, what incubation is seven to ten days right <laughs> it, dude, it seems like it keeps changing because I feel like the first couple times I read it, it was like three to five days but now it's like yeah seven to ten or something yeah, something crazy. Yeah, I, I I mean, so far, so far I've been okay. And I, I, we, I mean, we did a crazy deep clean in the hospital and then we're just, you know, trying to keep everyone diligent about washing hands and spraying down surfaces. And so mm-hmm. hopefully, hopefully it was minimized. I don't know who tested positive. I have guesses, but I don't know exactly who, cause you know, we had 30 people call out after that. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think it was localized to like people that worked really close together. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully I can keep saying that I'm nice and healthy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully. Cause if not, then I mean like, mind you, you're not going to spread it to me through the microphone, but from what I hear, <laughs> if you get sick, like you're like, you feel pretty crappy. So I imagine we may have to skip an episode. Um, if that were the case. No, I'll talk like this and be like, oh Jordan, gosh. I'm here for you. <laughs> so yeah, I'm still a stay-at-home mom, which is fun. Ooh. It's yeah. fun. Yeah. I mean, who knew like trying to tell a kid like greater than versus less than was so like difficult, but like, and I feel bad because like he doesn't want to do it. And then I get mad. The alligator eats the bigger thing. Yes. So that's exactly what I said this morning. But then like, he was just like, what alligator? I don't know. And I was like, but you do. Mm. Before I shake you. 
go to your room because you're not trying. And then he'd cry because he's like, I am trying. And I was, and then he'd do the whole thing. Like, I'm just dumb. And I'm like, you're not dumb. You're not trying. Like you don't want to do it because he knows that like, I get frustrated to a point where I'm just like, screw it. And I'm like, this is this. Mm. So then I sent him to his room instead. Cause I was like, you need to learn. See, teachers. I, I, I feel, I don't, I think they have the patience Dude, I can't even of, like. I don't even know. Not not just a saint of a teacher. They have the patience of a teacher. Yeah, <laughs> like it is crazy. I love my kids yeah. to death, and it's been nice spending like kind of quality time with them and like doing things. But homework is not one of those things that we enjoy doing together. Yeah. So that is not part of the quality time. But luckily, we try to get it done pretty quick, so like it's forgotten about, mm. like mm-hmm. by noon. <laughs> so nice. <sighs> It's, I'm, I'm ready to like do veterinary stuff again. Yeah. Yeah. So I so you get a on... little bit of time right now to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And I got my new fancy notebook that I'm super excited about. Oh my gosh. So Jordan got this, uh, water erasable, right? I think. Yeah. So it's water erasable notebook and I have a small version but she has the big one um but the cool thing is is it it connects to all sorts of like apps and stuff like that so Mm -hmm. like it it uploads which is it's it's pretty cool but it's reusable um so saving trees I know (laughs) I'm so excited because you just snap a picture of it and I can upload it to like my google documents I can send it in a text message like I, uh, I can do all this really cool stuff with it and I'm like and I write notes all the time like I'm I'm more of a pen and paper type of person versus typing it out on the computer really kind of drives me nuts. Cause I feel like I miss things. Cause I don't, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. So I'm excited about that. If anybody <laughs> wants to look into it, it's called the rocket book. I am not a paid sponsor, but I'm really excited about it. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I, so, uh, Jordan has like, I think it's like what legal size, right? Yeah. I got the letter size. Yeah. So the letter legal size, I have the small version that is, I think it's like three and a half by five. It's small. So it like, it fits in my um, scrub pocket. Oh, so I actually nice. have it at work and I can just like write on it. So yeah, which is funny because who knew we'd have the same brand of thing and it wasn't planned. So was <laughs> this is what I do when I like Amazon shop. And I'm like, what, <laughs> what should I not buy today? Oh yeah. Right. And then oh I did God. it anyway. I know. Seriously. I know. So. I, I, I had, I was telling Jordan, I had some gift cards left over from Christmas and birthdays for Amazon. And I'm the dork that I was like, I just bought a keyboard holder because I, I, it's just not comfortable at home. It's not ergo. Whereas work is ergo. So, um, I bought a keyboard tray for my counter Cause that's where, that's where I record this podcast and do everything on my computer. So, um, I splurged and used three, three different gift cards that I had <laughs> nice. to, to pay Dude, for this keyboard holder. I was like cleaning out a random cabinet this morning when I was trying to find the waffle maker. Cause you know, mom life. Yeah. And, um, I found a $50 like Kroger gift card and I was like, wait, have we used this yet? And like the back hadn't been scratched off yet. So I was like, nice. I know. I was like, dude, win. And the fact that we just lost $50, like it was no big deal. And then I found it again and I was like, first world problems guys. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I know I save up like my um, gift cards and like I squirrel them away so that like those times where it's like 
stuff's a little bit tight. I'm like, I have mm-hmm. a gift card. Yeah. Um, so I get to do that right now. But yeah, it's it's nice. <laughs> anyway, so, <laughs> enough of our boring lives right now. Um, but we don't we we don't really have any shout outs this week. I think everybody's still in the thick of things. Um uh and Jordan and I have not been as well about posting on social media because she's being a teacher. I am working crazy hours at work. Um, but we are very excited because, because this week marks the six month anniversary of us starting the podcast, which I can't believe it's been six months already. And Dude, that we I know are doing this once a week for six months. And, and you guys still listen to us, right? <laughs> we haven't. And some people actually like us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love the people who are like, we can really like tell your personality in it. And I'm like, oh, are you sure? <laughs> like, hopefully, hopefully it's our you, personality. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Hopefully you can't see my full personality. <laughs> right. Yeah. We want to keep some of that stuff in the shadows, like. You don't need to know all of it from me. It's cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Can't break that fourth wall yet. <laughs> exactly. That's podcast terms, if anybody. Uh, actually, I think it's like movie terms. I think it's movie terms, yeah. Yep. Either way. <laughs> so, yes, happy six-month anniversary, Yvonne. Aww. It's been a pleasure. It's been so fun, Jordan. See, we're so new to all this still that we're like, it's been six months. It's uh, like right? when you start dating someone, you're like, it's six months. It's so awesome. right. <laughs> <laughs> and then eventually we'll be like, yeah, it's been like 10 years, whatever. Right. Um, so we don't have any questions, I think, this week um, that we need to worry about. So definitely, if you guys have questions about anything, send us send us a message, whether that's Facebook or through email. Um, our email is podcast at, um, internal medicine for vet Um, that goes to us and we can answer any questions. So definitely. Yeah. Plus, we're feeling up. a little socially distanced right now. We, are. I wouldn't mind talking to someone. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yes. So true. Especially, <laughs> especially poor Jordan. She wants to not be a teacher for a little bit. So, so hit us up if you need anything. <laughs> yeah. Yes, please. Yes. <laughs> anyway, this week, I mean, it's our follow-up to last week's episode on our blood transfusion. So this week though, we are going to be talking about actual blood products, um, what they're used for, like what's in them, just because I know that I don't remember what's in them all the time. Um, possible reactions that one might see and just kind of to look out for and how to properly monitor your patients during blood transfusions. Cause again, back when I used to do it several years ago, I was not monitoring patients like I should have been, but now I thoroughly enjoy being on a transfusion patient because I know what to look for. Um, and I just, there's something so satisfying about really doing it right. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> To have it be successful. (laughs) Well, and I'm sure we've all been there. Like I've been burnt out before where Mm -hmm. it just wasn't like, unfortunately, like the patient care wasn't like top priority. Like we've all been in that burnout situation where it's just kind of like, you just want to get through it. And like, you kind of go through the motions, you make sure the basics are done. Yeah. And to like sit there with the beyond and yeah, exactly. And you know, that feeling where you would get like annoyed to have to watch a patient for four hours. Like, yeah. And I'm just like, now I don't do that because A, I thoroughly enjoy blood transfusions and I enjoy my job and my work is like a unicorn clinic anyway. So like, I'm happy to do anything. (laughs) Yeah. 
um, that it's just nice to not feel that burnt out and like sense of annoyance when mm-hmm. being so involved in something like this. So anyway, um, so there's several different types of products that are used in veterinary medicine. Common ones are obviously going to be kind of first on the list. And then the more, I guess, not commonly seen ones are in there. Yeah. So, very specialized stuff. Yeah. Yes. So our fresh whole blood is obviously what it says, fresh whole blood. It is red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, all coagulation factors, albumin and globulin, and fresh whole blood is only considered fresh um, if it's not refrigerated up to four hours. If it is refrigerated up to 24 hours, after 24 hours of being refrigerated is considered stored whole blood. And stored whole blood contain red blood cells, white blood cells, still contains platelets, but they're non-viable, so you can't really count those because it's not going to help your patient if it's bleeding and you need platelets. Um, it does include some coagulation factors and albumin and globulin, which are your important proteins that you need. Yeah. And I, and I was going to say one of the things that that's a big, so you said at room temperature, four hours and then stored for 24. It, it's really important to remember there's a reason why four is the magic number as yes. far as hours outside of the refrigerator, because we don't want bacteria growing and causing and and multiplying in blood because again blood is a perfect medium for that um so four hours that's that's the magic number which is why we do transfusions over four hours Mm -hmm. um, to make sure we're not risking um, bacterial growth but yeah exactly and risking our patients so Mm -hmm. it's definitely good to remember that that four hours is the magic number on that and this goes for by the way any blood products that you pull out of the fridge once you've spiked them, it's only good for four hours. And I, I do get into that a little bit more, but I'm a pretty big stickler on that. Like you can't, you can't spike something and then um, put it back in the fridge and leave the line on it. Like you've had it hanging for four hours or during a transfusion, put it in the fridge and then try to re-give that to the same patient like six hours later because mm-hmm. you haven't used the whole bag. You really want to again, you know what, let me push that back. I'll talk about that later. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a stickler about that. And then we have our packed red blood cells, which is what we mostly use at my work. Um, mm. And what that is, is what it sounds like. So you have red blood cells, mostly. You do have some white blood cells. You have some non-viable platelets in there. And then you have a small amount of plasma because like Yvonne said last week, you don't want it to just be one big clump of red blood cells trying to make its way through another patient's vessels because it's just too thick. Um, So a a small amount of plasma is in that. And then kind of getting into the more interesting stuff, um, we have platelet-rich plasma, which I've never given to a patient, but my surgeon uses it for joint taps, I believe. Mm. I can't really say exactly like how he or what he uses it for. I do have indications for that later, but um, so what that consists of is platelets, obviously all of our coagulation factors, albumin and globulin. So our proteins, and then you do have platelet concentrate, which is different than platelet rich plasma. So platelet concentrate includes platelets and a low volume of fresh plasma, which the name is a little like misleading because you think platelet rich plasma would have plasma in it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And I use a type of platelet concentrate. Have you ever heard of it? Stable plate? 
I think I've heard of it, but I've never used it. I've honestly, I've never used platelet rich plasma myself, either yeah. one concentrate yeah. or platelet rich plasma. I guess maybe I don't use platelet concentrate. I use the, so the next one is lyophilized canine platelets, and that's just platelets. And uh, what I use is stable plate, and it's like freeze dried platelets mm. that you reconstitute and you like gently swirl it and administer it as like a bolus, so like one mil a minute. And these, it's only like eight mils total, depending mm. on the size of the patient. And it's meant to be like platelets that are meant to go somewhere. So you have a bleeding spleen and the dog's uh, platelets must be like pooling somewhere else. And so there's not enough platelets circulating. You give some of this long enough and it lasts long enough to do the splenectomy basically. So it's huh. good for like emergency situations. So I keep it on my shelf to sell to the surgeons basically. So they've given it to mm-hmm. hit by cars who like we run platelets and it's like 18,000 because we're assuming they're bleeding somewhere and, and they need to go into surgery and they just want the extra boost because those platelets are only good for 24 hours. It takes effect within one hour of administration. So it's kind of one of those band-aids that you can put on hmm. Interesting. for the body, for them to get like a bleeding spleen out and then for the body's platelets to actually go and circulate throughout the body somewhere else versus pooling in that spleen that's bleeding everywhere. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty cool p- product. It's pretty expensive. I want to say I think a vial costs about five hundred dollars. Woo! Um, but it's worked. I've sold I think eight of them, and huh. every time it's worked. Nice. Again, not a paid sponsor, but <laughs> <laughs> unless you want me to be. I was gonna say, yeah. Uh, anybody want to <laughs> drop to us on that one? <laughs> yeah. Um. And then more products that I do use pretty commonly is fresh frozen plasma. Mm-hmm. Um, I use this all the time. And what those contain is all of our coagulation factors and then the important proteins of albumin and globulin versus our frozen plasma, which is no longer fresh after five years. No, after one year. I, was I, was say, new- I thought it was one year. <laughs> like, it, oh God. It, no, no, I, I was, <laughs> it's no longer considered fresh frozen plasma after one year of storage, but it's no longer considered good after five years of storage. Right. So frozen plasma contains all of our coagulation factors, but just lower concentrations of the really big factors like our von Willebrand's factor, factor five and factor eight. So yeah, frozen plasma is pretty good. I know people have used it for like low albumin and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then (laughs) I like that refrigerated plasmas on here, but refrigerated plasma is just or thawed frozen plasma most of the time. Hmm. I would guess this, this could be like, if you work at like a university or something like that and like you get like, you have a blood bank and you go from, from like collection to patient before it gets frozen, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. So refrigerated plasma has all of our coagulation factors with mildly reduced concentrations of some factors. So yeah, like Yvonne said, it's probably that freshly pulled off plasma that you do refrigerate. And I do have storage information on this too. At some point we can kind of get into. Mm. And then I think cryoprecipitate I've sold, but I've never used. But that has Mm. concentrated factors of coagulation factors 8, 13, and von Willebrand's factor, fibrinogen, and fibrinonectin. When I think cryoprecipitate, I just think von Willebrand's disease. That's what you use to treat or pre-treat von Willebrand's disease before a surgery usually, Mm. like a spay. (laughs) Right. And then 
lyophilized cryoprecipitate, same thing. It's concentrated factors of factor eight, 13, and von Willebrand's factor of fibrinogen and fibrin fibrinonectin. So it's pretty much the same thing, just a different version because cryoprecipitate comes frozen. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then cryosupernatant. Um, I've literally never even heard of this until yeah, I was. I didn't know that either. <laughs> I'm like, what? Um, but that contains factors two, five, seven, nine, ten, and eleven. So that's a lot of the common pathway. Yeah, and, I was gonna say that is more common pathway. And pathway. so we talk about our clotting cascade and our coagulation factors. There's an episode twenty-three, our coagulopathies episode. So I'm gonna tell you the indications for some of these, but if you really want to kind of dive deep and see like what clotting cascade some of these things treat feel free to go back and listen and try to match it up. Um, but indications for use on a lot of these products. So our fresh whole blood, you're going to treat things like anemia, especially with a coagulopathy or platelet disorder because it's fresh whole blood and you do still have platelets in there. Severe hemorrhage requiring massive transfusion. Yeah. And the other part too, it, whole blood in general, like you're, you, this is for a patient who potentially is mm -hmm. hypotensive as well. So, right, we don't have the volume in our blood vessels. So whole blood is going to be good for that. Um, and also, you know, if you need, so like if you have a patient with like mm -hmm. a low protein or a low albumin, right, we want a colloid. That's what I'm trying to think of. A colloid in the cell to keep, or in the blood vessels to keep your fluid retained in the blood vessels instead of leaking out into the peripheral tissues, right? So if you've got a patient, you know, we, it's, it's that like volume overload mm -hmm. thing too. So whole blood, either fresh or stored, you know, you, you want to be careful because you're adding volume. Yeah, exactly. Because you have that excess like plasma and stuff like that, that you don't normally mm -hmm. see with packed red cells. And the water and the fluids and all yeah. that fun stuff. Yep. Exactly. But fresh whole blood's good for like the hit by car who does have a splenic mm -hmm. rupture or something. So you do need those platelets. You also have a hypotensive patient because they're shocky um, mm -hmm. and they're having severe hemorrhage. So the platelets kind of come in handy. Obviously the red cells come in handy and then the extra plasma comes in handy as well. So yeah, your stored whole blood is not as good at kind of like a fresh wound where you might need platelets, you're looking at more just for blood loss anemia. So that's good in those patients that, especially if you don't have a blood bank and you do just need like a whole blood donor for an anemic patient, like it's not always ideal to give whole blood versus packed red cells. But in situations like that, where you don't really need the platelets or anything, you just need the red blood cells. It's beneficial for your anemic patients as long as you watch out for your fluid overload, because that can definitely easily happen, especially in cats. Mm -hmm, um, sure. and then your packed red cells, again, what I mostly use, that's especially good for your symptomatic anemia patients. And this can be anemia of any, any reason. So your patients who do come in just white, um, tachycardic, what else are they're usually tachypnic a little bit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. they can be hypothermic. Yeah. A lot of times and they're then hypothermic. you've got patients that, you know, they're, their SpO2s are low, like, mm -hmm. you know, it, and, um, I think that's something that's really important to remember too, is we're not treating a number, we're treating symptoms. Yep. Right. So if you've got like, for example, if you've got a chronic kidney cat, yep. right. Who 
their body, you know, stop producing the erythropoietin, which stops stimulating the bone marrow, you know, they may come in and their PCBA may be 13, but they're acting mostly normal, right? They're a little bit quieter, but they're still walking around. They're still purring. They still got fight in them versus like the dog that comes in that I I'm, I'm just going to blame the lab, right? The lab that ran through the sliding glass door, cut an artery on its leg and needs red blood cells. (laughs) Like, Mm that's different or yeah. you know a rodenticide who all of a sudden its pcv went from 35 to 20 well they may be mm-hmm. more symptomatic at 20 because it was an acute loss of those red blood cells than a patient who's chronically been at 13 15% and their body's adjusted to it um, yeah so again we're not treating a number we're treating the patient and the symptoms so just well, because their pcv's think- low doesn't mean they have to have blood yeah, exactly. There's a, not a magic number, but yes, yeah, symptoms are, are key, but I think packed red cells are especially useful in our kidney patients who are prone to mm. fluid overload or any heart patients who have an underlying disease or an underlying anemia um, that you do need to treat and you don't want all that excess plasma and stuff like that going in as well. You do want just a specific amount of red blood cells going in to get rid of those symptoms of anemia. Then you can treat the anemia with your immunosuppressors and, and things like that. And then um, PRP, our platelet concentrate, and PRP, sorry, stands for platelet-rich plasma, platelet concentration, and uh, lyophilized canine platelets. Those are all useful in with patients that have a marked thrombocytopenia with critical hemorrhage. So just a thrombocytopenia pet, like our, our IMTPs, we don't normally give platelet concentrate to because it doesn't, it doesn't boost those numbers long-term. It's more for our patients with yeah. a critical hemorrhage that have, like I, like I was saying, I had like a splenic mass that ruptured. And so they have spl- uh, platelets pooling somewhere else. Um, to try to stop the bleeding, but it's just not enough. So you need that extra little bandaid because when we read about transfusing platelets, we know that the lifespan of platelets in a normal healthy patient isn't long anyway. It's about five to seven days. Your Mm -hmm. lifespan of transfused platelets is even shorter. You're only looking about a 24 hour window of those platelets really making a difference. So it's a bandaid long enough to get into surgery and correct the bleeding problem. Yeah. And when, when Jordan said marked thrombocytopenia, this is like under 50,000 usually, um, because once you get under 20,000 platelets, you're just going to have bleeding everywhere. You can have spontaneous bleeding. So usually we're marked thrombocytopenia is really under 50,000 and that's where we're going to be very, you know, diligent about watching our patients. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not something to rush to get if you have a patient that is about to be spayed and you only have 95,000 platelets like that's not I've gotten phone calls about that that's not (laughs) yeah like recheck your lab sample look at a platelet smear make sure that number is accurate make sure there's no clumping exactly take a look otherwise yeah exactly so our fresh frozen plasma I use this a lot in internal medicine so we see a lot Mm -hmm. of coagulopathies with clinical evidence of hemorrhage so that's like our petechiation or our hemoabdomens um, and like mm, our rodenticides will have like epistaxis and DIC, which is freaking terrifying. 
Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes we use it um, for uh, our rattlesnakes. Yeah, yeah. Any yep. a lot of toxins actually can cause coagulopathy. We use it for a lot of heat strokes. Yep. Um, so coagulopathy Ugh, without hemorrhage, but with planned inv- invasive procedures. So you do have those like you have a high coagulation profile, so high PT, APTT, but they there's some need for a surgical intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, so like you want to go ahead and or yeah, that are, you know, they're not or liver yet, mass. But it looks bad. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cause a lot of liver masses, like we talked about in our coagulopathy episodes too, can cause coagulopathies. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and low proteins and low clotting factors and all that yeah. stuff too. So exactly. And then yep. it can also treat coagulopathy without hemorrhage or planned invasive procedures. So you just have a coagulopathy. So our rodenticides where we're not bleeding yet, um, but we suspect that it's coming. So we want to try to get on top of it fast heat strokes where again, they're not bleeding yet. We know that it can cause coagulopathy and we just want to try to try to beat the bleeding to the punch versus our frozen plasma Which again is after a year, but before five years. (laughs) Yep, exactly. And that is used for like anticoagulant or rodenticide intoxication, coagulopathy. Um, Yeah, I think that's the only time we'll use it. Or we'll use it if a patient's like, we just need a colloid, but we don't need all the clotting factors, right? Yeah. Like if we just need to bump up with the colloid, um, like their albumin's low, mm-hmm. we will use plas- like frozen plasma instead of fresh frozen because we know yeah. we don't need all the coagulation, you know, the clotting factors and stuff like that. So we're fine yeah. using the frozen plasma. Yeah, exactly. So like if you have like a PLE dog, so a protein losing enteropathy dog, who's mm-hmm. just severely losing that albumin, their albumin number is like 1.0 and mm-hmm. you just can't get it up enough with like your things like that starch or head of starch. Um, sometimes we'll, we'll give frozen plasma in the, in those yep. situations. And then refrigerated plasma is emergent treatment of life threatening coagulopathy. So same thing. That's if you have access to that, like fresh, like right off the tap plasma. <laughs> um, and just really Which treating. I don't. <laughs> nope. Nope. Never used it. I, the only time I've ever used a refrigerated plasma is if we've like separated a bag that we've thawed mm-hmm. and then I put the excess in the refrigerator and then I use it the next day. <laughs> right. Yeah. But that's not the same. <laughs> no, definitely not the same. Um, and then our cryoprecipitate, which I kind of mentioned. So that treats our hemophilia A, von Willebrand's disease and fibrinogen deficiency. Again, I've seen it a lot with our von Willebrand's diseases, but because I haven't seen very much hemophilia A probably. And that's yeah. good in those patients where you've done enough testing to know that they have, or they're likely to have von Willebrand's disease, but then you have a Doberman that needs to be spayed. And so you want yeah, to Yeah. And it. I think there was, there was a while that we actually couldn't get cryoprecipitate in California, which really sucked. Um, I think there's now, um, I don't know if it's a man. I guess I'll call it a manufacturer, but there's a, there's one that they do cryoprecipitate again, but for a while there, we couldn't even get it, which really sucked. Um, but you know, if you've got a pet with Von Willebrands, um, a lot of times they can order it and have it themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, so if their pet needs a procedure, they can sometimes bring it with them. And then, so the lyophilized cryoprecipitate, which again, I've, 
have never used, but you can use it for hemophilia A. We can also use it for von Willebrand disease and the fibrinogen deficiency. So I don't know why we would use cryoprecipitate versus lyophilized cryoprecipitate. I'm guessing that it probably has to do with like a storage thing versus how long it's going on shelf versus, you know, how easy it is. So I'm, I'm going to guess that that's probably the difference between those. But again, um, I've never used it, so I don't know. Um, and then cryo, um, cryo supernatant is going to be for your deficiencies in factors two, five, seven, nine, ten or 11. And this is, um, this is one where with rodenticide intoxication, you can use it. So, you know, if you have cryo supernatant, you can use that versus, um, fresh frozen plasma or, uh, frozen plasma. But, um, you know, we don't carry a huge variety in my clinic. Um, we actually don't even have whole blood. We just have packed red blood cells. Um, fresh frozen plasma and frozen plasma. Um, so we don't, we don't carry more just because when you have all these different types of things, uh, you know, there's an expense involved with that. So we, we just basically have the three, we have the packed red blood cells, the frozen plasma and the, um, platelet or not even platelet, excuse me, fresh frozen plasma and frozen plasma. So what about you? What do you have? I mostly have packed red cells, fresh frozen plasma and frozen plasma. And then mm -hmm. with my blood bank that I run, I occasionally have stored whole blood in there as well. Yeah. I was going to say, I think when I worked at my old clinic, because we did have a donor program, we stored whole blood mm -hmm. um, because it was just, it, it, that's, that's what we had. We didn't have like a big centrifuge to separate out the plasma. From one of the, these days i know right um which is funny because um my 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 hospital that i'm working for right now we're talking about we're talking well it's been talked about for a long time about having um like a blood bank blood donor kind of thing in house um but we're going through the what exactly does that entail because I, I keep telling them i'm like it's not as easy as you think it is it's so expensive, like initially too. Yeah, like just getting all your donors is, tested and yeah, testing plus the equipment that you need to kind of have. I mean, it's not it's not huge, but it is part of the big expense of it. Because um, long term, it's not a big deal, but initial setup is expensive. So we'll see if we can get it. So I guess um, the next section that we'll talk about is your transfusion. So when you're actually transfusing a blood product, right, we need to make sure that for each patient that we, the, the recipient of the transfusion, we need to make sure that we log it very carefully. Um, and this goes typically, it goes in the medical record. So well, medical record, as well as just whatever house in housekeeping notes you have. So, mm -hmm. um, you're going to have your recipients. So the name, their ID number in your clinic, what species they are, the breed, gender, age, the what body weight, and then also the recipient blood type. 
um, and then any previous transfusions. So it's funny because I don't think we do this at my clinic. Um, we don't keep a transfusion log. Do you guys really? keep an, yeah, no, we don't have uh, a separate one. I mean like our blood bank log we keep, so like we have it written down, like who gets what unit just so like, if we ever do need to refer back to it, mind you never, we never do. Yeah, see, we don't have a blood bank slash we don't have a log outside of the medical record of the recipient. We do. Sense? Yeah. Yeah. Cause like, yeah, mind you, like sometimes like on my blood bank log, like a, a separate practice will buy it. And obviously I don't have that patient's name. Sometimes I get the patient's name, but not always. So I'll just write like so-and-so clinic bought mm. this unit of blood. But like for the most part, it has like when I get my blood in, like the donor ID number, and then we have the date that it was taken out and then who, who, which patient receives it by which clinic. Mm. I think for you, I mean, I, I can see that it's probably more than, more than what we do. Cause it's just in-house. Like we don't mm -hmm. have other clinics that we give the blood to. Yeah. Cause we um, use it to keep track of like who bought what blood. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I now do I have understand, it. Like if you have a um, blood in-house blood donor program. Yeah. I think I, I think I could, cause I think I did keep it when it was the in-house. Well, in my blood donor, program, blood donor program, I, I kept more information because I want to know if one of our donors is causing issues. Yeah. 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 Like my separate blood but, donor program, that's a separate binder than like my packed red cells and my fresh frozen plasma. Hmm. And that I have like every time I've taken blood from one of my donors, like what their PCV is that day. And right, I'll kind of go yeah. into this a little bit more and like their weight and their temperament and how they did last time they transfused. Did they have any react? Like I have a questionnaire that I have the people who bring in their donors hmm. to, uh, just to let me know how they did last time. Like whether I used sedation or not and how they did after the transfusion, like did they vomit? Did they eat? Did they like, were they lethargic at all? If so, for how long? Um, I'm pretty neurotic hmm. about that just cause I really like record keeping I mean, I think I definitely did more of that when we run the, ran the program, but like for now we order all of our blood supplies. Yeah. Yeah. So if it I wasn't keep as, we don't keep as diligent. Yeah. Yeah. No, for my packed red cells and my fresh frozen plasma, we definitely don't have as much information. Now we do have transfusion sheets, which have pretty much all this information on it. So yeah, but that goes in the medical record, right? Yeah. Exactly. Which in yeah. my opinion, in my medical record, it's, it's different, but like outside of the medical record, we don't have like a log. Yeah. We have like the mini log and then I have my blood donor program log and then our transfusion sheets for our patients, which I think should include everything on this. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, so for our transfusion sheets or for your patient sheets, what should, or what is recommended to be on it is for your recipient. So the person or pet person for the pet receiving the blood, you want their name, ID number, species, breed, gender, age, signalment. Let me just say signalment, um, body yeah. weight, and then their blood type. And then it, we know it. Hopefully you do. Hopefully you do. Um, <laughs> and then if they've ever had a previous transfusion again, if mm -hmm. you know, because a lot of times people don't, right. um, I don't have, I'm modifying my transfusion sheets right now. So, because once I was doing this, I was like, mm, I need to add some things to my sheet. Mm, Cause right mm -hmm. now, like when 
I have a patient that's getting like a second or third transfusion, I just write on the transfusion sheet, like number one, number two, number three. Mm. Um, just because sometimes we'll split a bag. So we only charge them for one bag, but that covers two transfusions and things like that. So I like to know where right. to like attach those records to. Um, and then for the blood product, you want to know the type of blood product. So I have circles that you can circle packet cells. You can circle fresh version plasma. You can circle whole blood or you can circle others. So like we use it for like our IVIG that we give sometimes, which I didn't put on this list by the way, but IVIG is the transfusion that we should talk about at one point, but not right now. And then your donor blood type. So what you're giving, administering like positive, negative, A, B, A, B, um, things like that. The volume that you're transfusing it's really important. And then mm-hmm. production and exp, um, expiration dates. So when you're, because that is important too, especially for some of your like severe, like IMHA patients, you don't want to mm-hmm. give the blood that's expiring soonest. Yeah. I was going to say when, when, when you're dealing with, um, when you're dealing with the autoimmune disease like IMHA and ITP um, and they need red blood cells, we try to get the freshest blood cells possible because there are things that can build up that, and the fact that they're older cells, so the body is going to reject them quicker. Yeah. Um, so we try to make sure, you know, we, we, after our cross matching and everything mm-hmm. we talked about last week, um, that, you know, use the freshest sample that you possibly can to help prevent it from being broken down right away. Yeah. Cause a lot of times too, when we are storing blood in the, in our blood fridges, there's an mm-hmm. anticoagulant factor in there, whether mm-hmm. it be ATD solution, uh, some, I, I've seen that heparin bees anyway. So the longer those solutions sit mixed with the blood, you can actually have a buildup of ammonia Mm-hmm. Um, and that can cause some problems in some of our immune mediated patients. So we do. Yeah. I was going to say immune mediated and liver patients. Yes. Because, um, a buildup of ammonia can cause all sorts of issues. So. Yeah, exactly. So, and then your transfusion details, this is pretty important. So I'm a pretty big stickler, like I said, on the monitoring of patients. So you obviously want the date of your transfusion, the reason for your transfusion, if you know, um, sometimes you don't know, you just know anemic and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and administer, um, uh, cross-match results. Hopefully if you have them, especially in kitty cats, volume administered, the duration of the transfusion is pretty big too, because so say you do intend your transfusion to go over only four hours, mm-hmm. but for some reason, the total volume, because you, sometimes you have it on a pump and those pumps aren't meant to transfuse blood. Um, So, or sometimes the pump can be off. So you want the duration of the transfusion. So if for some reason your patient's exhibiting some sort of symptoms of a transfusion reaction a couple days down the road, you can kind of go back to your log and see, well, you know what? It looks like this transfusion actually took five hours instead of four. Um, And then you can kind of piece it together where, okay, well, maybe we had some bacteria growth within those, within that transfusion set between the fourth and the fifth hour. And then of course you want to monitor, um, or you want to make note of any transfusion reactions. Yeah. So the other thing too, is like, um, you know, sometimes we'll slow down the rate of a transfusion because of, are they having a reaction or are they not having a reaction? And so sometimes we'll slow things down and then they do okay with it. So 
there's a lot of a lot of reasons to keep diligent notes <laughs> during the transfusion um and yeah so making sure you 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 monitor that and and record it appropriately. Yeah, because also too, like if you see that a transfusion was slowed down, but you don't see a reasoning why, like mm -hmm. that can be questionable. Because a lot of times too, like we'll slow down a transfusion if we think there may be a reaction. And then once it kind of subsides, we'll try to speed it back up to try to get it in in the four hours and then just keep monitoring for any sort of reactions. But sometimes you can't speed it back up because they do start to exhibit symptoms. Yeah. And, and you mentioned too, with your, I don't know if you have this somewhere else, but, um, we try to not use a pump, um, mm -hmm. because the, the plump, the, the fluid pumps that I have are not rated for transfusions. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we use a, like a drip assist. Mm -hmm. Yep. I have one of those too. Yeah. And now so occasionally, you know, <laughs> that sometimes will slow down your transfusion because if they move their leg uh -huh. and all of a sudden it's not flowing as well, yeah. right? You get a little bit of pressure and it slows down the flow because we're just using gravity. So sometimes <laughs> the duration of the transfusion is, yeah. uh, the drip assist is nice <laughs> because it can allow you to do that, like gravity flow. However, and what it does is it just kind of monitors your drip rate. So it kind of tells you like you, try to set it. And if you remember from tech school, calculating drip rates, that's what you want to do. Um, but unfortunately I don't really like it for cat transfusions because it's not ever fast enough that it just doesn't, it never gives me a drip rate like ever. Yeah. So it's really hard it. to monitor for, it's really only good for dog transfusions over 60 mils. Like, <laughs> yeah, I um, usually don't use it for cats. I use it. I, I use a syringe pump for cats. We do too, but I went to a lecture with Kenyagi once and um, there was a discussion about how like syringe pumps are great, like if you have to, but a lot of times because those filters are smaller, those heminate filters, they, you actually still get in the pressure of the syringe pump pushing it, like you still get a lot of lysing of the cells. So what you can do to kind of bypass that is instead of using the hemonate filters, right? Um, use a regular oh, uh, and draw administration yeah. and then draw it from through the filter through that filter. I mean, obviously don't like suction super hard, but yeah. you know, a slow pull, pull it into your syringe and then you can actually transfuse it into your patient without another filter. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a good idea. So Which I've we, I know and we've I've done, done that, that before. for like small dogs too, like where it's a small volume and like, yeah, um, I'm not using the whole bag, so I don't want the whole bag to sit out. I'll draw exactly. up the volume that I want. Put Which, it. Can we just touch fridge. on that real quick too? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty so, important. Um, yes. Which is what I wanted to touch on a little while ago, but it is super important to draw out the amount that you want. Cause it's not always going to be like packed red cells come in 125 mils or 250 mils mm. roughly. I mean, usually there's more in the bag. Yeah. Depending on the bag. Yep. Um, but no, like I'm a, I'm a pretty big stickler on that because it's, it can be frustrating when you get in and you see like someone tells you, Oh, well the rest of the blood's in the fridge. You can just give that. And then I get there and then the line spiked and I don't know how long it sat out for, or if that connection set was also attached to the patient and then put back in the fridge, that's a big no, no too. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just frustrating because it's a waste of money for the client. Then I have to spend more money opening another unit of blood, not to mention I'm wasting blood. That's hard to get anyway. 
and you have to cross match and yeah and and it's putting the patient at risk if that were to have happened and i didn't catch it and it's just it's frustrating so don't do that if you only need to administer a certain amount try to draw it out i have dry bags in my clinic for a reason because i like to draw it out of one bag and put it in a dry bag and then hang that Um, versus using a syringe pump because I prefer like gravity if I can if I can help it. Yeah, I, I only use a syringe pump on small patients. Yeah. So cats or like small you know, dogs who are only getting forty mils. Yeah. 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 But otherwise, um, you know, I'm just it's the drip assist or syringe pump. Yeah. Depending on the size of the patient. Yeah, exactly. But we yeah, still use pumps occasionally, but that's that's to really eliminate for us, like not, you know, sometimes we get busy and we can't have just one person sitting in front of the cage. You're taking care of seven other inpatients and mm-hmm. I just need that beep to tell me. <laughs> yeah. we, we have timers that we set too, like especially when we use a drip assist and stuff. But sometimes if I can't closely monitor the drip assist, I, I like to have it on a pump, even though I know that it's going to shred some cells. Yeah. And the other thing you can do when you're drawing it out of a bag to kind of go along with that is um, you can actually tie off the line. Mm -hmm. Like I usually will tie it off in a couple of places. So Mm -hmm. that way I know that nobody's going to use that because there's most of the times there's two. Yeah, there's two. Yeah, exactly. Most of the time. Sometimes there's not. I like those extra little like administration, um, it's like a, like a spike. Yeah. Support. Yeah. So I'll, I'll draw it out through the filter, but then I'll throw the line away and I'll put a spike on. Yeah. Just so I don't have that blood just sitting in a line too. Yeah. And the other part of that too, if, if you're going to do that, you need to be very aseptic about it. Mm-hmm. Right. So ideally you're doing this sterilely mm-hmm. um, when you're drawing it up, especially if you're going to store it in the fridge. So don't just like, you know, <laughs> use your rubby hands ideally you should be wearing sterile gloves to and you know doing it as aseptically as possible um to prevent potential cross-contamination so yeah exactly ideally yep um i did put a couple like procedures on here but i'm going to talk about the ones that i do most often so i have packed red cell formula and administration on here as well as Mm -hmm. plasma so our packed red cells formula mind you my doctor does this most of the time um but it's one of those yeah, I was gonna I... say we usually don't calculate it because you know this is very this is very specific mm-hmm. because there's a certain volume that you want depending on what percentage of PCV you want it to raise as as well as like how big is your patient. So it is a very specific formula, and, and most of the times my doctors will do it. Um, so it's good to know it, but you don't or know of it, I guess, but you don't have to memorize this because most of the times we're not doing it. Exactly. Exactly. So I have two formulas for packed red cells. So our volume transfused to the volume that you want to transfuse is the, you get this number by first way is required PCV increase. So the percentage that you want that PCV to go up realistically, this is why doctors do this. Cause in my opinion, I'm like, if I have a hematocrit of four, I want it to go up 20%. Um, but, and then you multiply that percentage by one and a half multiplied again by the body weight in kigs Mm -hmm. versus the other way to do it is your desired PCV minus your patient PCV 
divided by your donor PCV. Um, so you want to get a PCV of your packed red cells because everybody's going to assume it's 100%, but it's not. You're going to no, multiply usually around 60 to 70. Yep. And you multiply that by 90 mils per kg. So 90 mils per kg times the body weight in kg. Again, there's a reason why doctors do the formula. This is one of those things that I have to like thoroughly write out in order to really understand it. Well, and those are two different formulas and yep. it probably gives you a little bit of a different answer depending yeah. on which one you use. So again, it's also doctor dependent. <laughs> yep. So, so they pick their, their, uh, equation and go yep. with it. <laughs> yeah. So then they give you a desired volume to be transfused basically. And then your rate of administration initially, because it is going to go up, hopefully, is going to be about 0.25 to half a mil per kg per hour for the first 15 to 30 minutes. So a quarter to a half a mil per kg yep. per hour. Yep, exactly. And then after that, if you're not seeing any sort of transfusion reactions, so again, I'm going to kind of get into transfusion reactions a little bit, but you're looking mostly for fevers, um, itchy face, Vomiting, swelling. Yeah. Uh, sometimes dogs will get like the swelling around the eyes, hives in general. Um, so if you're not seeing any of that during that slow rate of transfusion for the first 15 to 30 minutes, then you can increase your rate to two to 10 mils per kg per hour. Just trying to ensure the range is so wide because you really want to ensure that the transfusion is complete in four hours. Mm -hmm. So you might want to start with two to four or two kgs per two mils per kg per hour, then go up to four mils per kg per hour, then six, eight, and, and just gradually increase as depending on how much volume you're trying to get into that patient and how quickly. Um, a lot of times I'll grab my blood products out of the fridge. I'll invert it several times. Warming's unnecessary unless it's large volumes or high rates are planned. So necessary yeah, unless warming. you have those like shocky patients who come in freezing cold and half dead and you just really need to slam a bag of blood in. Yeah. But warming that is still and warming is very dangerous because you know, it really depends on how you're warming it because if you warm it too much, you can actually damage. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, it's best to warm the and proteins. But... Yeah, exactly. And in my opinion, it's best to warm the patient. If you're, especially if you're going to administer blood rapidly, yeah. Warm your patient, selecting an appropriate filter. We kind of already touched on this a little bit. So inlines, I think, are preferred because they are a little bit bigger, but they do what they're supposed to do versus your micro aggregate filters, which are like your heminate filters. But again, they do what they need to do. And their job is to remove micro ag aggregates or debris that might be present in blood products. So you're looking at large proteins, um, clumping, platelet clumps, clots. Um, yeah. or fiber and I pots. usually use like the micro aggregates. Um, I use those for plasma. Yeah. I don't, I, cause I don't, I don't use, I should, but, um, I don't really use the inline filter for plasma, but I will use the, the neonate, like hmm. the small filters just because, you know, you're not damaging cells. <laughs> so, but it'll catch stuff that Cause you know, if there's a fibrin clot or anything like that, it'll, it'll, um, it'll catch that. So the other, the other big thing about a transfusion is you should have someone who 
is familiar with blood transfusions and is, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't stick your, you know, your assistant who is just helping you guys out on this. Um, it really needs to be a dedicated person who's familiar with transfusion reactions that is monitoring this patient. And it really depends on the doctor, but you should be at a minimum every 15 minutes. Um, I know in my clinic we do for the first 15 to 20 minutes, we actually monitor every five minutes. So we'll do a TPR um, every five minutes for the first 15 to 20 minutes. And then we go to every 15 minutes for the first hour and then every 30 to 60 minutes after that. Now that gets adjusted because if a patient is, you know, chain, if there's changes in your TPR and your patient, you know, you may be doing it more frequently throughout it, but it's a minimum of every, you know, 30 to 60 minutes for the last two to three hours. Um, and you should be logging this the whole time. You know, you're going to be, you're going to be looking for potential reactions. You, so the, so we're going to talk about what those reactions are in just a little bit. And then another thing that's kind of interesting is if you have a neonate, um, or if you work with exotic species, you can use either um, your IV catheter, so peripheral IV, central IV is totally fine, um, or an intraosseous catheter for your neonates and your, your exotics. Um, or even, you know, a patient where you can't find a, a blood, blood vessel on. So you can use an IO catheter because that goes directly into the bone and then gets absorbed into the, um, the bloodstream. So just, uh, if you don't remember how to do an IO catheter or intraosseous catheter, um, you know, it's, it's not the easiest, but you can definitely, you can definitely do that. Um, the other thing, so with, when you're running your blood through a catheter, ideally we really, we don't want to run other fluids through the same IV catheter. So most of the times, like in my clinic, we, we have two IV catheters for a patient. One is going to be your blood product. And then another is going to be for your other solution or your other IV fluids. Um, but you can do a normal saline. Um, so 0.9%. So normal saline, um, or a, another balanced electrolyte solution that can be given it with the, um, red blood cells. But again, ideally you've got a separate catheter for that, especially if you've got something like a hypotonic or a hypertonic solution, because that can actually, you know, break down your red blood cells, which makes it pointless. And then, um, if you've got like a, um, if you've got a fluid that has extra calcium in it, the calcium can actually chelate with the citrate leading to precipitates and then clot formations. Again, we, we don't want that to happen. And then glucose can actually cause uh, red blood cell, what red blood cell clumping. Again, not something that we want. Um, and then the other part or the other thing that's really important to remember is 
if you are giving medications IV, they're not going into the same catheter as the red blood cell. Again, we want a separate catheter for that um, to prevent issues with, with medications. Yeah, I think that's super important. Um, but a lot of times we push off medications like, cause we'll only have one catheter. Yeah. Oh, um, see, we make it a habit of always having the two. I, I do prefer to like, I guess I prefer to when I'm giving plasma. I don't know why, but I think it's because every time we mm. give blood, like there is like a specific amount of time where we were only giving blood and nothing else. Now we do have some patients who like, we have to have two catheters because we have to administer something else. Like, especially if they're like hypotensive or something and mm-hmm. we, we have to administer certain medications or fluids, but a lot of times, most of our like IMHAs and stuff like that, they're just getting blood and we can push off medications to hours later. Yeah. I think of it as, I was going to say, your IMHAs, ITPs, those guys are, or like kidney patients, most of the times they're normotensive anyways, mm-hmm. right? So you just need the red blood cells. You yep, don't exactly. need to raise their blood pressure. We're literally so just treating the anemia, like nothing else. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, Whereas like a patient who is hemorrhaging because it's spleen or got hit by a car or dentist yes. or any of those things, most of the times they're hypotensive. So you do need to get the red blood cells in, but you're also bolusing fluids to get yeah. them under control. So yeah, I guess it does depend on what's going on, but most of the times, like in my clinic, we'll just do, we'll just do two catheters because it's, it's better to have a clean catheter for blood anyways. Yeah. Exactly. And you want a large bore, right? Yeah. You don't want to give it through like a 24 gauge catheter. Why not? Um, and then, our, <laughs> <laughs> and then our plasma products are pretty much administered the same way. So I didn't go into too much detail. So administer mm-hmm. through an IV catheters, only saline being given through the catheter. If we're going to give anything, um, blood filter is required just to remove any protein precipitates. So we already did kind of talk about that. The starting range is a little bit more lax, I think. So you just want to go for less than five mils per kg per hour for the first 15 to 30 minutes. And then if no reactions noted, you can increase to five to 10 mils per kg per hour. Um, except for you do want to reduce that number to one to two mils per kg per hour in patients that are possibly at risk for fluid overloads or heart patients and things like that. Um, you do want to do a lower volume. And the dose for plasma is a lot simpler. <laughs> because it's a dose. (laughs) Oh my God. So much easier. The normal dose for that is about 10 to 12 mils per kg. And then thawing is pretty important though. Um, You do have to ensure that you do that right. So you want to thaw your frozen plasma products between temperatures of 30 and 37 degrees Celsius in either a plasma thaw or a water bath. We don't have a plasma thaw. I have a water bath. Yeah, I have a water bath. (laughs) And you want to do it about, I mean, we have the water constantly moving and unfortunately our sinks aren't great. So I'm constantly checking the water temperature cause it'll get hot and cold. And like, it's really, really mm-hmm. frustrating that I do want a plasma thaw at some point. And I'm sure I'll get one if I ask hard enough. Um, but it's important too, to not like crush your plasma. Like I've seen people take the plasma and try like to like break it and try to break it apart. Yeah. Uh, try to break it up just so it thaws a little bit faster because you do want to get these products in. Um, yeah. and it does suck to wait an hour to thaw something. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do want to do it properly. Otherwise you're going to lose all those coagulation factors, which you're probably trying to administer. Yeah, exactly. And then reactions, 
because again, I wasn't going to go into too much detail about administration, um, but the reactions I really wanted to get into. So there's several different categories of reactions. So you have your acute reactions versus delayed reactions. Um, acute reactions you are usually detected within 48 hours, but can be apparent within the first one to two hours. Um, versus your delayed reactions are often less severe and can occur to five days or longer after a transfusion, depending on the type of delayed reaction. Sometimes this can even be weeks after a transfusion. Oh, yeah. When I read that, I was like, my mind was blown. I was like, oh, okay. Oh. Yeah. It depends on the body and, and how it's reacting. But I think it's crazy that you can see reactions so late. So late. Yeah. Well, yeah. and some of those reactions, and again, I'll kind of get into it, but it's just like you accidentally transfuse a patient with like an infectious disease or something. So that's something that you're not going to see mm, for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, and then your other categories are immunologic versus non-immunologic. So your immunologic reactions are going to be kind of like febrile, non-hemolytic, acute hemolytic, allergic, or delayed hemolytic. <laughs> and this is, I mean, if you think about it, this is going to be the immune system attacking yep. your the product. Yep, exactly. exactly. And so the febrile, so having a fever, but we're not breaking down the red blood cells mm -hmm. versus acute hemolytic is we're breaking down those red blood cells. And so we're going to have the hemoglobinuria. So it's going to be the red urine, right? And, and if you've ever seen it, right, it looks like bloody urine, mm -hmm, but, it's but you go to orange. spin it down mm -hmm. and it's the same color, right? Because it's not red blood cells that are in the urine. Because if you were to spin it down, you'd get that red blood cell pellet in the mm -hmm. bottom versus the hemoglobin is just throughout the urine. When you spin it down, it's going to look the same. So that's, yeah. that's a big difference that you'll see. But yeah, it does have kind of that more... It is a more brown color because it's that yeah. theme versus the red blood cells are a little bit more red. Yeah. I mean, exactly. it's, it's subtle, but you definitely see it. Yeah. And then, and then allergic, you talked about it, yep. which is poofy. Your facial swelling, <laughs> hives, itchiness, um, mm -hmm. even vomiting. That can be an allergic reaction too. Mm -hmm. And then your delayed diarrhea. Yeah. 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 Yep. And, and then your delayed hemolytic is similar to the acute hemolytic, but you're going to see that couple days later. So I was going to say that's a couple of days yep. to a week, right? I think. Yeah. So that's where they start. Like, it seems like the transfusion goes fine. It's very disappointing because then like three days later, then you're seeing that hemoglobinuria and you're like, dang it, you're shredding your cells. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because oh. they have developed those antibodies to those red blood cells mm -hmm. um, versus your non-immunologic non are things that you can't, it's not the body Blame attacking the body it. for. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So you're going to have non-immunologic hemolysis. So a lot of times this is due to us drawing improperly, up the blood. Yep. Yeah. Improperly handling or improperly drawing the blood. If you have a blood donor program and you just improperly handled it, or if you're administering it too fast and it's just shredding, mm -hmm. that's just improper handling. Um, circulatory overload we talked about. So fluid overload, hypocalcemia. Mm -hmm. This can occur when there's like a, a reaction with the anticoagulant. Um, yeah, I thought this was really interesting when I was reading about it because I felt like my brain just exploded. I was like, what? Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, the hypocalcemia can definitely be an issue from the anticoagulant and that can cause muscle tremors and things like that. 
which is trippy if you think about it yeah and then of course you have your non-immunologic reaction of sepsis so that's just bacterial contaminated your blood products somehow um just not mm-hmm. maybe your bloodline was disconnected and touched the floor and yeah it's just please don't ever do that please <laughs> oh i can't eat. oh god i I've seen people wipe the ends of ports off with alcohol and then re- reattach things. And I'm like, that's not sterile. Not Just only that, I'm pretty sure isopropyl alcohol is not supposed to go there. Anyways. When in doubt, get a new line. story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I didn't get into like overly big details on these reactions because it would be its whole own episode. Yeah, and we can we can do, but these are the types of reactions. Yeah, we can do a deep dive at some point, but um, but it is it's it's a lot of information and um, and these. So I will touch though on so your immunologic transfusion reactions are usually caused by an antigen antibody reaction between your cellular or protein content within your donor blood. So this can be the red blood cells themselves your albumin, your globulin, your white blood cells, things like that. And it's reacting within the donor blood product and the recipient's immune system. So like Yvonne Mm -hmm. said, this is the immune system attacking your transfused product versus your non-immunologic transfusion reactions are usually caused by other Other. factors. (laughs) Other than the immune system, exactly. (laughs) Outside factors. So you have your circulatory overload, improper collection or transfusion technique, transmission of an infectious disease, like I briefly talked about. So that's where we're not properly screening our donors or you're not getting blood from a screened donor. And so you accidentally transfer Babesia, no big deal. Um, Or heartworms. (laughs) Um, And then of course, bacterial contamination is a huge one. And then your acute febrile non-hemolytic reactions actually are the most common described reactions in cats and dogs. Um, and this is what mm-hmm. we, if we're going to see a transfusion reaction, this is likely what we're going to see. And it's just characterized by a temperature increase greater than one degree Celsius during or immediately after transfusion. So acute just means within a, within 48 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you're likely to see that during or immediately after. Um, Which is why we're doing our TPRs so frequently. So yeah, I mean, you're mostly going to see fevers, um, hives, itchiness, vomiting, diarrhea. Yeah. So thing, I was going to say the things I've seen, I've seen the vom or I've seen vomiting and diarrhea, um, temperature increase for sure. Like that's the big one. Sometimes I'll see an increase in respiration. Yeah. Panting versus once, you know, once they get more red blood cells, their respiration rate should go down. Yeah. So if all of a sudden you see their respiration going up, that means that they could be having a reaction too. So, yeah. And again, we talked about it last episode, but we're not pre-treating these patients Correct. with steroids and antihistamines. Because so we're we want only going to treat. Yeah. We're only going to treat symptomatically. So if they start having a transfusion reaction, Oh, and actually, you know, I, we didn't touch on this, but if they're going to have a transfusion reaction, we want to know about it. Mm -hmm. And if you're monitoring your patients, the first thing you should do if you suspect a transfusion reaction is turn off the transfusion, Mm -hmm. then go talk to your doctor. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We all know how hard it is to actually like 
if your doctor's in a room and then you're just administering more blood and then your transfusion reaction is getting worse because you haven't had a chance to talk to your yeah. doctor, you want to turn it off before it becomes an emergency. And then you have to like pull your doctor from the room. So turn it off. Doctor comes out. You're like, Hey, by the way, the temperature spiked 1037 or something like that. So I turned it off. What would you like me to do? Yeah. And usually um, turn it up at a slower rate. Yeah. And I was going to say, I, that is, I think that's one of the biggest things that I would tell people is just, if you're worried about it, turn it off. Like I've seen it so many times where people just leave it running and they're like, what do I do with this? And I'm like, turn off the transfusion, then go tell the doctor, you know? So again, first line of defense, turn it off. We can always turn it back on. Just stop, stop giving the thing. That's the problem. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) It's the tip of the week. Um, so I think our tip of the week this week is just, it's just me being me. Um, but be sure to have, (laughs) be sure to have trained staff monitoring your transfusion patients. I would not put my poor assistant who's going through tech school on a transfusion patient for her to like monitor herself. I would have her monitor with me because Mm -hmm. you also want to have adequate monitoring sheet to keep records of possible changes noted during a transfusion. And this is important too, because your doctor's busy. They're not going to be checking on you every 15 minutes while you're getting vital signs being like, everything mm-hmm. is okay. And, and you do want to make note. Yeah. You know what? The temperature increased to 102.4, but then it went back down to 102.0. So you want to just really kind of keep an eye on things like that. So having mm-hmm. trained staff who are aware of what to look for and then having adequate monitoring sheets to to also kind of make it easy for mm-hmm. people to notify you if something seems abnormal. And I use, um, I use timers with yeah. these patients because I don't want to accidentally forget or get stuck on something. So we always set a timer, mm-hmm. um, whether that's five minutes, 15 minutes, half an hour, whatever it is. Um, just so you don't accidentally go, Oh my God, it's been 40 minutes since I checked on my blood transfusion because you know, uh, a tube exploded in the centrifuge. So yeah, you know, making sure you've got someone dedicated to it, like we said before, and also someone who's trained in it and just set yourself timers. It's not, it's not a sign of weakness to use a timer to keep you on track. Oh no. I mean, veterinary clinics are busy. Like if I didn't set a timer, like even for things like my ACTH stims, I would be like, what? I was supposed to do what? Oh my God. <laughs> I have timers for all my tests. I'm like, yeah. oh yeah. I have timers hours. for everything. Wait. Exactly. Sometimes I set timers for spinning things in the centrifuge. Cause if not, it'll spin for two hours. And I'm like, ah, nice. Do that frequently. Been that long. They just sit in the centrifuge for that long. Not really that long, but yeah, long. No. mine will spin forever. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, wait, I mean, but at least I got it. See, ours spinning. automatically, ours automatically turn off. Oh so yeah. Then ours doesn't. There. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's another tip of the week. No, right. <laughs> Timers. <laughs> and now for the question of the week. So what type of transfusion reactions have you noted and how did you manage that throughout the reaction? Did you stop your transfusion? Did you just stop it for a little bit, wait for the symptoms to subside and then restart it slower? I just want to know what other people are doing in their clinics for monitoring and what you do for transfusion reactions. Have you seen any weird transfusion reactions? Have you seen a transfusion reaction three weeks later? Let me know. Again, social Mm. distancing is getting a little tough. 
<laughs> please, please talk please to me. Everyone talk to Jordan. <laughs> I need some adult oh interaction. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Maybe, ooh, maybe we should do like a Facebook Live or something. We should do a Facebook Live. This is question of the week part two. <laughs> if you guys would want to do a Facebook Live or something like that with us, let us know because why not? Why not? I'm happy to talk with anybody right now. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Especially talking about veterinary medicine. Oh, right. So if we do a Facebook live, I don't really want to talk about COVID and I don't really want to talk about kids or homework. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be a veterinary only one. Dang it. (laughs) Someone's going to be like, you have kids too. And I'm like, nope. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Nope. I don't, I don't (laughs) own them. (laughs) Just kidding. Oh my God. Yeah, if your kids ever listen to this. Mommy needs a break. Mommy needs a break, exactly. <laughs> but they know I love them. We go strawberry picking. We do fun things. I make exactly. up for it, but then I need some alone time. Yeah. And yes. some adult interaction and some... And some veterinary technician interaction, guys. <laughs> yeah, some veterinary technician, like, conversations. <laughs> like, uh, I miss my vet tech true. conversations. I know, right? I can't even imagine right now. I'm sorry. Because I only talked to you a week about it, so. Well, we can make this more often, okay? All right. (laughs) Anyway. So on that uh, social distancing (laughs) conversation, um, yeah, I hope, I think blood transfusions are going to be something that most of you guys have probably seen, even if you're in a general practice. Definitely. So uh, definitely let us know what your guys' experiences are and, you know, anything else you can think of for this week? I don't think so. I feel unfortunately like I ranted a lot about some things in this episode and I do apologize, (laughs) but I do feel very strongly about this and I know I left a lot of stuff out, but if you want to hear more, please. Yeah. And remember for blood transfusions or other blood stuff, right? Um, Association of Veterinary uh, Hematology and Transfusion Medicine. So avhtm.org. It's a great resource. You can sign up, you can be a member and they have, um, if you're still in school, they do have a student membership, which is uh, really inexpensive actually. Um, So that's something to check out. I think Jordan, you're part of it, right? Yep. I think both of us are, yeah. So both of us are members of the association. So, uh, <laughs> yay. <laughs> um, but I think that's, that's it for, I think that's it for this week, right? Yep. I apologize if I left anything out, but please contact me. Tell me about it. <laughs> it's fine. Um, and we will talk to you guys next week. We're going to switch gears next week and go to something else, but don't think that I'm done with hematology and transfusions yet. Cause I'm not, No, we're not. We, it, I promise. <laughs> hematology and transfusion stuff that is near and dear to both of our hearts. So we will definitely be going into it a little bit more in the future. We just, um, you know, we've been doing our six week cycles of body systems and we gotta go through the basics first and now we've got another body system we're gonna hit up which um are we gonna tell them what it is i mean we can we definitely i mean given the circumstances i find it pretty ironic it is ironic (laughs) um so we we're gonna start doing respiratory stuff next week 
not Yay. just because of COVID, but because we do need to talk about respiratory because respiratory is very much an internal medicine thing. And so, in a normal week, circumstance, it's kind of respiratory season right now. Oh, yeah. With all the definitely. allergies and stuff. So that was yeah, another I'm definitely reason. seeing more. I'm seeing more of it right now. And I know my respiratory is kicking up. <laughs> So yeah, so next week we're going to do respiratory basics and then we'll dive into some um, specific stuff after that. So um, very excited. All right, guys, I think that's it. So thank you for listening and we will talk at you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.